Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I am super excited because we have a friend and an amazing executive, Lou Kimball, with us today. Lou has been, for a number of years, the CEO of Foot Locker for International, one of the top executives in the company overall. He has actually just recently retired from Foot Locker and has many great stories to share with us about the leadership that he's been involved in and the whole digital transformation that has been ongoing at Foot Locker for a number of years. And uh, we chatted about some of this in advance, some amazing cool stuff we're going to talk about. We'll see where it goes, but I know they've done some amazing things, for example, with RFID technologies in the stores. We want to talk about some of the ways they've used customer research in really interesting ways and some interesting lessons learned, and also a little bit about what they've done successfully in response to COVID and dealing with that most effectively. So much, much ground to cover. So let me just welcome you, Lou. Thank you so much for being here. Yep, thanks, Howard. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me along for the, uh, for the ride here. Yeah, of course. Now, I gave a brief introduction of you, but anything else that you want to share that you think would be good for us all to know about your background and history? Yeah, I think, I, I, I mean, I've really been fortunate. So, I, you know, and I worked for the same company for over 40 years, which will be, a, you know, a nuance in today's world by, by all uh, measurements. But along the way, I mean, I spent half the time outside the U.S. So as a, uh, for most of the last 10 years as a corporate officer, you're, you're involved with what's happening in North America and for us as a global brand. But you, but you, you just get a unique experience with living abroad and uh, managing across the uh, over 35 countries that Footlock is fortunate to do business in across Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. So it really gives you a different perspective. And as you said, Howard, going through the current dynamics of 2020, every country is in a different point in a different place in time, from you know early February or March uh, in Asia to uh, you know what we're experiencing today across Europe and the United States. So it's it's an interesting ride in 2020 for sure. Yeah. And uh, why don't we start there, actually? What are some of the biggest challenges you faced when COVID hit? But also, what are some of the things you guys did to adapt? And are there ways in which your digital infrastructure was key? Because I know you, you were very successfully made some, some rapid moves. Yeah, we, we, we've been fortunate. So we, we started on our digital transformation uh, probably five years ago from that standpoint and, re and really uh, started to invest heavily into moving into a new era of technology. I mean, we've had e-commerce businesses around the world for now almost 15 years, but you know whether we were really good at it or not, or the customer gave us good marks or not, that, that's another story. So we were really heading that way already. You know, COVID changed a lot of things. I think first of all, you know, we should talk or mention the fact that it's a dramatic effect on our on your associates around the world. I mean, the reality is, is they're blocked from going to work, they're blocked from doing the things they would like to do. And going to work could simply mean, you know, going to their retail store where they work or going to work for a lot of people means just getting out of uh, their apartment or their house and having a chance to go and, you know, be with their teammates and do things. And, you know, that's that's a significant change in everyone's lifestyle that we're all experiencing as you and I are doing this now from our homes from that standpoint. So, yep, yep. I think the most interesting thing about COVID is how each country handled it differently. And, you know, when you roll across the globe, it was a different place and time. I mean, at one point you would have given Singapore really high marks for handling the uh, first brush with COVID back in February and March really well. But then we ended up shutting down, you know, for six weeks in, uh, in August and September when a lot of other places in the world were coming back online. So I think the advantage to any retailer that was already in the digital space and already making investment is, is that you're on the front foot, you're playing offense. If you were a retailer that was lagging and not engaged with the uh, consumer through the digital channels, you're now playing catch up. Uh, and playing catch up is going to be tough. It's going to be tough to find the resources available to you to try to catch up. And it's also going to be tough to, to try to get to where the customer already is waiting for you. 
And so how much were you ready to go and able to be on the front foot or were there areas where you had to play catch up? I'd love to hear some of the specifics about where you were able to leverage what you'd have already done or how much of it was just automatic. You know, if customers could go to your website and buy shoes without you needing to do anything, what changes though did you need to do to accommodate the new COVID world and how much of that was really ready to go and how much of it required some quick scrambling? Yeah, I, I think the positive thing for us was that, and again, many retailers are in, this, are in this space already, is that our inventory to the e-commerce consumer was available and transparent, whether the inventory sat in a store anywhere in a particular country or it sat in one of our service centers. So we were on the front foot there. Um, we also are fortunate to have a really dedicated store associate team. So when any state in the U.S. or any country allowed us to at least go into store once a day to fulfill e-com orders, we had a chance to unlock that inventory. And I think the, uh, and you and I have talked about this, I think the, the shift from buy online, shift from store from a boss perspective to even as you start to engage with either click and collect or BOPIS buy online, pick up in store. As a retailer in today's world, you, you need to be able to have access to your inventory. And the advantage to us was because we already fulfilled a significant amount of goods from our stores. In one country, it could be over 50% of the, the orders in a country less, depending on how the penetration and where your inventory was. But because you were already doing that, you didn't get inventory frozen out from that standpoint. And that's to me, was one of the biggest risks for a lot of other retailers was that your inventory was trapped in a store and you had no way to, to service the consumer out of that. And while your store was dark for four weeks, eight weeks, 12, whatever the scenario was, it just sits there. So the good news for us was we were already enabled on that standpoint. And I think a lot of retailers were. I think it wasn't just us showing up at the mall. It was, you know, the gap. It was other players in the mall from that perspective that already had a uh, to wait unlocked from that standpoint. So, mm -hmm. but uh, mm -hmm. Um, the probably the negative side of it was the, obviously the pressure on the actual delivery system. So, you, you know, the the amount of product that all of a sudden the UPS needed to try to figure out how to move or the U.S. Postal Service or FedEx or wherever you were using as your carrier, there was an enormous amount of pressure there. And, and and although the consumer is understanding and patient, there's only an extent to what they're willing to wait from that standpoint. Yeah. And so did you then also continue to ship product to the store in the same amounts in the same way you otherwise would have done? Or did you, did you actually change your inventory in the store aware of the COVID situation? We generally either cut off the store and sold it down from what it was. If the store was a, in, you know, in a sweet spot from a geo-targeting standpoint that it needed inventory, like we tried to get it to it. Again, it really varied. If, if we took the U.S. as the example, in some states, you were allowed pretty much access to the store when you thought you needed to get there as long as you didn't open up for the general public, which means you could ship and receive no problem. In other states, you were you were blocked. There really wasn't a lot of traffic moving. Uh, and that was the case in some countries, too. I mean, there was countries where we were frozen out for why the country went into a lockdown that you weren't allowed to move product to the stores. You could get in and look at what's there. And then the good news was, as you started to look at reopening, the teams across the world did a good job to make sure the stores were reset before you reopen. Uh, you know, when the consumer was eventually going to feel comfortable coming back into the stores, you had to reposition yourselves from that standpoint. And on top of the product moving back and forth to the stores, as you started to reposition, the entire retail world became attuned to the word PPE and what that meant and what the pressures on supply chain were to get the supplies you needed to the store to allow your associates to feel comfortable and the customers to feel comfortable to actually reopen. And so as you had some stores that you could get to and some that you didn't, then were you able to know how to expose what inventory was available because it was in stores that you could access or block the inventory that wasn't actually accessible to you at that moment? And was that something you were prepared to do as well? 
to give our IT organization credit over the last five years, was a, a lot of the investment was in understanding where the inventory was, understanding what the opportunities were from uh, from a digital standpoint, whether that was reaching to the consumer or understanding where the inventory sat and how to move it. So in most parts of the world, we get 24 hour lag time. So we pull every store and, and we get the information uh, as most retailers do. Yeah, uh, but, but the reality is, is that we we're already in a system of looking at that and accessing it all the time. In other parts of the world, we, we have closer to real-time inventory, depending on other tools that are available. But we're in pretty good shape from that standpoint to understand where it is and how to access it where it's not. So you would be sitting there, our merchandising allocation team was sitting there with huge amounts of what's called backlogs of needed sizes or new product that was stuck at the service center that your vendors may be delivering, but you can't access to the stores. And then you have to gradually start to flow. That's probably been one of the biggest challenges for retailers who got reopened or are uh, on the front foot from a digital technology standpoint. The reclosings or the shifting of the landscape continues to make it challenging from that standpoint. And then you add on top of that some of the other challenges that happened in the U.S. that affected retail locations. You get a lot of moving parts, much more than it would have been nice for the allocation team and the planning team if probably if it was just the COVID situation in the U.S. and not all the other dynamics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't know uh, how much uh, Sports Authority has made public, but I'm sorry, uh, uh, Foot Locker, I mean to say. Sports Authority on the mind, because I was thinking of the fact that you kind of sit at a, at a little bit of an intersection between apparel and sports. And so I realized, of course, during COVID, apparel is generally speaking done poorly. Uh, people aren't going out as much and many categories of apparel have suffered. And on the other hand, sporting goods has been one of those categories that has really taken off and the sale of home gyms and all these types of things has been huge for that part of the industry. So in your case, I don't know what you can share, but is there anything you can share with us about kind of what the impact was? How, how did it impact your total financial results? Yeah, I mean, again, we you know we've reported now through Q2, and there's no doubt that, that you know we had a um, you know a, an increase on the apparel side, especially in in fleece, casual apparel, as as you said, Howard. People were staying at home, people were dressing comfortably. I mean, even today when I you know put a shirt on, it was like, okay, how many days has it been since you wore a real shirt and not just had something comfortable <laughs> around the house on from that standpoint? Ah. So, so we all felt that bump. And you're right. I mean, industry wide, if you look at that, the industry globally. Uh, there definitely was a surge in demand in casual, comfortable clothing. So fleece items in the spring, uh, you got into summer, probably more polos, because again, we want to look like we're at least a little bit at work. Uh, <laughs> and across the world, there was a huge amount of pressure to be able to buy home gym equipment. You're absolutely right. So whether you looked at you know one of the other players in the industry, an example in Australia with Rebel Sports, which would be a equivalent with Dix here. Yeah, they were selling out of stuff as quick as it could be delivered in from that perspective. And again, when you're talking, as you said, with home equipment, you're not talking about something somebody carries home or anything. Uh, so again, you go back into the whole, you know, how can I get it delivered? When can it get to my house and that type of thing? But yeah, it's a huge swing. So it'd be very interesting as we go through holiday, depending on what happens around the world and how well the industry manages that huge pressure on certain items in the beginning of this year and whether the supply chain could catch up with it. You know, if I want home gym equipment in Christmas, will it still be available? Or, you know, how much other product will be in the marketplace based on cutbacks a lot of people would have made in Q1, not knowing what Q4 was going to look like. So it's going to be really interesting holiday season, assuming <laughs> that we're open and we're, we're trading as retailers around the world. Yeah. Well, that's great. You made a great point there. During COVID, if you're going to be in some category of apparel, be in t-shirts and sweatpants. That's... <laughs> Yeah. Comfortable clothing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, that makes tremendous sense. Yeah. Cool. 
Well, let's talk about a little bit about how you got to that point pre-COVID, because as you say, your organization did a lot to already be ready to be digitally transformed. Now, I would imagine you didn't do it to be ready for a pandemic. Very few of us saw that as a as an eventuality, but the flexibility that that gave you obviously was very important. I'd like to maybe dial back and say, how did that get driven? How did the burning platform, so to speak? A lot of people listening and a lot of organizations that I work with, it's always a challenge to get the organization to really commit enough very few companies are saying, eh, digital, that's a fad. Let's not invest there. Of course not. But it's one thing to say, yeah, let's improve things. It's another thing to say, let's redo how we handle inventory so we have a handle on where all our inventory, you know, it's like that next level of really robust transformation that gives you a whole new level of capability. And many organizations that are large and have legacy systems and legacy processes, they think, oh, we're not going to deal with something at that level. How do we put lipstick on the pig, so to speak? How did the organization come to make those investments and make those choices so that they really were ready, that they had already gone through that? You know, it was a really appropriate time. I mean, Dick Johnson, who's our chairman and CEO, really led a strong movement in the last five years to really making sure that the customer was at the center of everything we do. And if you really start there, then your emphasis is on how you're going to improve the customer journey. You know, we also changed you know, from from uh, being just a retailer, or the, you know, the global leader in athletic apparel and footwear to wanting to be the center of use culture. So again, focus on what the consumer wants. Uh, and the consumer clearly tells you that they expect the same experience no matter what channel they choose to engage with your brand. So whether they show up in your store or they show up online. We found, uh, and I think most successful retailers have found as well too, it's going to vary depending on who your target consumer is. And as a global company, it varies depending on the country. And in Europe, as an example, you know, internationally, where my experience was up until recently, you know, you can have a country like the UK that even outperforms the United States in a you know high 20% range online. But then you can have another country like Italy that's in the high single digits because the Italian consumer just doesn't purchase online. But I think but thinking along the way, you, you realize that if the consumer is at the center of everything that you want to do, then you invest around that consumer's needs. So for us, targeting a youth consumer or servicing, I should say, a youthful consumer, one of the first things on the digital side was storytelling and content because you know they start the day uh, wanting to research and understand what's going on in the product category. And then they gradually move through the experience to decide whether they're going to buy online or in store. And it's an interesting thing that'll be able to unlock that consumer, depending on who your consumer was. And I, now I'll give you a, a brief story that would help some of people about trying to make sure you know who the consumer is that you're targeting. A few years ago, we got together in, in London with one of our largest partners around the world. And we said going into the meeting that we both wanted, or the, the vendor partner wanted to target a 16 to 20 year old consumer, which is the sweet spot for Foot Locker, and they wanted to get younger. So how can we do it together? How can we partner? What else can we do? So we spent a lot of time with focus groups. We spent a lot of time understanding what the consumer was. We did all the, the normal legwork when you're trying to target a consumer. We identified three specific muses that we said, hey, these muses best exemplify the characteristics we want. We understood that in a lot of the situations to the younger consumer, one of the, one of the friction points online is they don't have a credit card. So I'll do my research. I understand what product is available, but I have to go to the store. And with the other thing we realized, which is a little different than the, than let's say a millennial consumer was, they weren't really hung up on same day delivery or next day delivery. The key thing to them was the confidence that when they were able to order online, that they actually got the product, that they didn't get the notice a day later that said, oops, sorry, we didn't really have it or it got sold out or, or the other, you know, uh, friction point for, for them as a consumer was you told me I would get it next Tuesday and I'm fine waiting until next Tuesday, but it didn't show up on next Tuesday. So. So us and the vendor went away, 
we came back six months later and said, okay, here's what we're going to do individually. And then here's where we could connect. And it was interesting because from the vendor perspective, they were really swung the focus around making more inventory available in 10 to 12 key cities around the globe, being able to go same day. So the consumer logging on in their office in the morning saying, hey, I'd like a new pair of running shoes to run tonight, having it delivered to the office in the afternoon and being able to run at night and connecting inventory across that city, not only from a vendor perspective, but all the retail partners. To be honest with you, it's been a tremendous lift to that brand and how they look globally. But it didn't do anything to target the consumer they said they were interested in. Because remember, the 16 to 20-year-old isn't working in an office in most cases. Mm -hmm. On the other end, from a Foot Locker perspective, things came into play about some of the other tools around the world, like Afterpay, which allows a consumer to purchase online and pay gradually without a credit card. It also talked about what the consumer was looking for was community which has been a big investment from a Foot Locker perspective. Again, get back to what's interesting to the consumer, what means something to them. And community means different things for different people. For one of them, uses community was the other people involved in being a sneakerhead and wanting to buy the latest and greatest and collect shoes or maybe even potentially resell shoes. For one of the other muses was a young girl who was extremely active in fitness. She worked out five days a week, but wasn't competitive. She wasn't doing it to be on a track team or play on a tennis club. She was just doing it for her own sake. So again, that was the difference in her community. And for us as a retailer, we really swung around a lot of stuff we do now. And you see it when we talk about community stores we open, whether it's in LA or New York or Hong Kong or Paris, that standpoint. So where you're, you're actually trying to service the people in that community and, and let them see the things that represent their community in the store and retail and online you know, the connectivity. Yeah, that's great. And I just want to uh, clarify for the listeners, when you say muses, is that the same as a persona or different? Or what, what do you mean by that term? You know, you're trying to generalize characteristics to say, hey, these three particular people, and they could, in this case, a lot of times they are real people. So we, in the focus groups, we, we probably listened to over 200 people between the ages of 16 and 20 across 14 global cities. So, And we narrowed it down to three muses. One was a guy who was a sneakerhead who was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. One was a 17-year-old young woman who was active in sports. And the other one was a 16-year-old a male who wanted to, whose goal in life was to make it as a professional soccer player. The idea was, you know, from a, I want to be an athlete. I want to use sports and healthness as part of my major life. And someone else who, hey, sneakers are a big part of my life, uh, which is a big part of our industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, so many things about what you just said I, I resonate with and are fascinated by. Certainly, uh, the idea of driving everything from the customer, of course, is uh, I certainly believe in that. And I'm not surprised, given the success, that that was. I'm always happy to see the point further proven out for listeners because uh, I'm a huge believer. I wouldn't even say believer because. I've seen it so many times. It's not a matter of belief. It's like I, I've seen it so many times that the successful transformations are ones that are, as you just described, driven by really understanding the customer. I mean, I would add too that what you were describing about some of your findings about don't tell me it's going to come on Tuesday if I'm not going to get it till Wednesday and don't tell me I'm going to get it if then you tell me I don't. You know, to me, one of the things that I also always think about is the emotional customer journey. And so tell me if this is consistent with what you saw. But what I'm hearing in that is, you know, don't cause me to experience disappointment. That's not an emotion that I like. I won't experience it if you tell me I won't get it till Thursday. But if you tell me I'll get it Tuesday, then I'm psyched because these are products that people are passionate about. I suppose it varies a little by muse, right? But certainly some of mm-hmm. them, you know, it's not like they just ordered, I don't know, you know, a new spatula or something. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. something. although I, I should say there might be somebody out there who would be super excited about getting a new spatula, you know, like a special spatula for a chef. But these are products people are passionate about. And if they're expecting it to come on Tuesday, they've got their emotions geared toward that. It's amazing how something as simple as fixing the accuracy of your delivery forecasting can remove that negative emotional moment. 
someone very thinking only logically, not thinking about the customer's emotions could say, well, if we're, it's, they're not going to get it till Wednesday, is it really that big of a difference if I tell them Tuesday or I tell them Wednesday? Because either way, I'm not getting it till Wednesday. And the answer is apparently it makes a big difference because of that moment of disappointment. I mean, I've sort of saw read between the lines of what you said. Does that mm -hmm. sound right to you? Yeah, a lot of what we do in the athletic industry is around supply and demand. And, and right or wrong, some of the most in-demand product, you know, has the shorter supply than some sure. of the, the stuff that's on the shelf. And, you know, uh, Evergreen or whatever the vendor may use as a phrase to say it's always available. You know, some of the frustration is, is that, you know, I finally don't think I'm going to get it. And then, okay, now it's not here when I thought I was going to get here. I'll eventually have it. But, okay, I really wanted it on that day type of thing. Uh, and you're right, Howard. I mean, one of the biggest things from a consumer standpoint, and you read about it, if you follow what your consumers are posting about you, or if you follow just what consumers say in general, is, is what you said, don't promise me something and then, then don't deliver. You're better off holding off on telling me something if you're not 100% true. But once you tell me, then I want to know. And it's the same issue with the, you know, launch product in the athletic industry is a big, is a big deal. You know, again, another technology investment for us, and I would say most of our key competitors around the world, is to manage the top of the funnel better so that you know when the consumer actually believes, hey, I'm really going to get a chance to buy this, that they really do. Okay, you know, you, there's always going to be a situation potentially, uh, depending on what kicks off from your fraud cues or anything else. The reality is once they actually real think they're going to get it, we should know they're going to get it. But yeah, there's a whole different world out there when it comes to uh, some of the hottest launch product. At one point, we used to count the bots in hundreds and thousands. And now I think we're up to tens of billions of bots that will attack a website on a launch day. And again, I, I think the consumers know that. And that, like I said, even in the, in, our, in the focus groups we ran, that was one of the points where is that I realized most of the time I'm not going to get the launch shoe. But when I do have the opportunity to get other product, yeah, I really want to get it. And you're right, uh, in our industry, and it's a way for a lot of industries, there's an emotional connection to the product. I mean, that's what makes it exciting. You know, it's yeah. always what's what made that part of retail exciting for me. And it depends on who your consumer is. I would argue that in our case, Howard, our wives might be just as excited about being able to get the women's handbag they want or the pair of boots they want to wear as a 16-year-old might be about getting the, the newest Nike or Adi or Puma shoes that are available in the marketplace. Sure. Well, that's something that I, I believe you could correct me if this is incorrect, but that's changed in the area of athletic footwear over the last number of decades is that now an important segment of it really is high fashion, not where mm -hmm. I should say maybe low fashion or whatever you want to call it, but it really is as much about fashion as it is about, um, you know, athletic performance, that type of thing, certainly with these high end products. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, almost every athletic footwear item starts from a technology standpoint or, or to serve a particular athlete. And then the branch off of that becomes, you know, a more casual product that you can actually feel comfortable in. And, you know, and that, again, it goes back a long time ago when people started to wear athletic shoes to walk in every day and to do other types of things. And even, you know, has moved in long before the COVID situation, athletic footwear was moving more and more into a uh, casual business environment. In most major cities in the world, you'll see somebody a lot of times wearing a pair of athletic shoes with a suit because it's just more comfortable and you get more play you're right you get more of a, a casual playoff from that standpoint and you get the opportunity to make it a fashion item as well right and right then, and then you have the ramp up you have some designer brands that you know live at clearly not in the performance area but clearly off the uh, effects of the athletic industry having huge demands for product and having a huge high ticket for the item as well mm-hmm I want to pick up one last thing about something you said earlier about the muses, which is fascinating to me. So what I heard is you were working with a manufacturer of product and you both participated in the same research and you went off. And what I heard was your team, the footlocker team, really used the information and applied it and got a great result in terms of the target. And then you had another team that took the information, they took it, but somehow it's sort of like the information, the insights didn't really wind up driving 
what they went and did. They just went and did something else. And actually, that's a pattern that I see very commonly. Companies will invest in customer research, but then are they being driven by the customer research? Or is it, well, there's this research team and they created these PowerPoint decks and then the product teams go, all right, yeah, yeah, whatever. But our vision is to do this and there's not really a strong connection. So I'm always interested in studying what goes right. And I'd love to know if there's anything else you can share about what happened from the moment that you finished that research and you had those muses, which was by no means a guarantee that you would use them to get to the end result. You know, as we saw from your vendor partner, what did you do right that caused the teams to actually follow the information they learned from the customer research to actually drive what happened over the subsequent months and years to actually bring product to market? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and to be honest with you, there was a lot of arm wrestling and different sessions going on in different meetings. Because you're right, Howard, what happens is we all started off in this particular example, targeting a particular set of consumers. And that's the goal. That was the, the marching orders, the mission, you know, what we were trying to accomplish. But because we all have personal experiences, when we didn't sit around to try to make decisions as a leadership team, a lot of times you default back to what you think the experience would be or what a family member told you or what your neighbor mentioned that they liked or didn't like or the other parent on the athletic field on the weekend. Uh, and you lose sight of what's going on. So we had plenty of those discussions where we were almost guiding towards where the vendor ended up with saying, are we really targeting a millennial consumer? So first time working, second time working. Uh, you know, second job in their middle 20s to, to early 30s, which is a huge segment of the population from a potential financial gain. But it's really not the target of what we were talking about. As we kept pulling ourselves back to, okay, let's remember what the consumer keeps talking about. You know, I think we ended up making you know a better decision to serve that consumer. Now, again, on the vendor side, to be fair, they they significantly increased their digital penetration in the in their targeted areas. Mm -hmm. But it was just not with a younger consumer from that time. And there's been, and again, I think for anybody in in uh, any type of retail or any type of digital business where you're trying to service a consumer, whether the consumer is a is another business or the actual end user of the product, as long as you identify who you're going to go after, it's fine. So I mean, in in the example you just I mentioned, you talked about, if the target was to grow a secondary consumer base or a tertiary consumer, because you said, hey, I own this consumer and I want another consumer. Yeah. Then going after shortened delivery times, product that's more geared towards that consumer's age group, uh, whatever it might be is right. But I think you're right. One of the biggest misses for a lot of companies, is they forget the consumer that they're actually targeting. And we too often drift back into our own. Well, when I'm online, I look for this. Well, okay. In this case, I'm not the 16 year old target consumer. We need to realize that. Well, I, I think sometimes we all hear uh, one of the expressions I use with my team a lot of times, the question is, did we really listen? Yeah. Listen and remember and socialize because as the months go by, I find it fades. And so, you know, I'm always interested to see what companies do to keep it fresh, whether it's something simple like making persona posters and putting them in all the conference rooms or using it as part of employee orientation or, you know, other things like that to make sure that it becomes something that people are kind of immersed in. Well, I want to talk about the in-store component because I know you guys have done some really cool, interesting things around. And it actually ties to what you were talking about earlier. Earlier, we were talking about the back end that you guys have built that has been so helpful to you during COVID to make sure you knew where the product was around the world between a store and a distribution center or whatnot. But I know you've also talked about, and I'd love you to share with the listeners, how you know where the product is in the physical store. Can you just give us an overview of what you've done there? And I know this isn't necessarily true all around the world, but certainly internationally and in Europe with Foot Locker, what you guys have done with RFID or other technologies that support inventory management within a facility. 
Yeah, I mean, as we talked about at the beginning, you know, one of the most important keys to to being successful as a retailer today is to be able to unlock the inventory wherever it sits. And I think most successful digital players have gone to being able to ship from the stores to fulfill an online order or to actually hold the order in the store and allow the customer to pick it up. And one of the key friction points for the consumer is, is that information accurate? So the last thing you want is power showing up in front of the store. Walking inside saying, hey, you're holding a pair of you know, size 10s for me in the store going, well, no, I'm sorry, we don't have that shoe. Or worse, worse comes, we take the order online, we process the transaction, the information prints out in store, the store goes back to get the shoe, it's not there. Those are all tough challenges and those are all negative situations for the consumer. As you said, I mean, telling the consumer no after they expect to get it is one of the most frustrating things, the most highest level friction points you can have. So one of the things in the European uh, environment we tested back in 2000 and uh, started in 2016 and then uh, deployed in 17 and 18, and we've used in most of our Asia, is RFID. A lot of the athletic industry is moving to RFID. I think you see Nike and Adi as the two biggest players, you know, using it more and more. But there's plenty of retailers using RFID. We didn't invent the wheel here. We simply deployed the technology. But what we found in the testing of RFID was a couple of different things. So first of all, it increased the accuracy of the inventory in store. And because most retailers are on some type of a polling system, a trickle polling system to update uh, cash and credit card transactions and stuff. So you can obviously trickle poll what you're selling in the store as well. So RFID allowed us to have a more accurate uh, look at the inventory on an ongoing basis, not just the next morning when you wake up type of thing. But in-store, it allows a lot, a lot of different things. So it could help improve shrink because you could do audits a lot easier and a lot quicker because you know you want the whole area of the product versus scanning each individual barcode from that perspective. It allows in the store, if you have handheld devices, and our stores have handheld devices, the store associates quicker to be able to find the product in the back room. Now, when you have 25 or 50 or 100 pair of an item, it's easy. But if you're down to the last couple of pairs, yeah, it could make the situation a lot better. And then it also offered us a, a, a unique opportunity. Um, at the time we first looked at it, we didn't really think we'd use it as much as we did because although we sell a lot of clothing, we sell a lot more footwear. What it allowed us to be able to do from a display standpoint is it allowed us to have someone each morning view the stores uh, and be able to find out if there was product that wasn't on display. That you could then email the store and say, you know, you're you're missing size medium in the you know in the blue hooded sweatshirt, or these are three SKUs of footwear that you have inventory in that you don't have on display because you could you could flag it from that standpoint. So and I, and I think that's where as an industry RFID could potentially move as a retailer. Knowing that from a retail perspective, we're always going to be challenged about how to have the right balance of associates versus consumers, how to do the best job of maintaining displays and having a creative environment and a solid experience in the store. These additional tools just help from that standpoint to help the store teams be more proactive. Because again, no one, in my opinion, no one really wants to not have all their product on display. You know, the three people that closed last night are not the three people that opened this morning. You know, I forgot whatever it might be from that perspective. You know, all the tools you could do and all the prompting you could do can really help from that perspective. So when uh, when we did the test stores, they obviously got more hand-holding than as you roll the program out to a larger audience, but it's definitely helped. And as Nike now, uh, as and Adi as two of the biggest global players, start moving from a barcode technology on the label, the product RFID, you're already there from a technology standpoint versus saying, okay, I don't have RFID, so now what am I going to relabel the product to so my internal systems can understand what the vendor's safe? And again, we're, I, I wouldn't say we're, you know, we're, we're way ahead of the curve on where we are or what it could be, but you know, it's a huge advantage. You could potentially audit your store in a very short period of time. You could audit your service center in a shorter period of time because of the technology. 
And you, like I said, you can make sure that the product is there, whether the consumer's trying to buy it and you're really confident your inventory levels are going to be that accurate, or the consumer could be shopping in a store and, not, and you don't realize that it's not on display. Well, and what's great about this is how everything you're describing ties back to some of the customer points of pain you talked about earlier, you know, and, and some customer points of pain I can imagine as a shopper myself, like when you ask for a size and the guy disappears in like 20 minutes. I'm like, where is this guy? You know, supposed to be, you know, and he could be looking through the stock room, like trying to find that size. And I can just imagine what it's like back there, especially by four o'clock on a Saturday, probably boxes everywhere. And if you can just light up an iPhone and be like, oh, it's that over there in the corner. You're getting back to mm-hmm. the customer faster. If, if you can make sure that, you know, you're not overlooking, you know, I'm sure there's people who walk out of stores that are told, sorry, there's no size 10 when in fact there is, but it was misshelved or whatever else. Yeah. It sounds like you're improving the customer. And it sounds like also the associates experience as well, because who wants to spend their time searching through the stock rooms? Probably not so fun anyway. No, and again, I think the technology will move into our U.S. operations in the near future as well, too. It's, it's, it was a different base point on how the product got labeled. So it allowed us internationally to move a little quicker. But again, because the vendors are moving that direction too, it also unlocks a lot of things. You know, if you go back in time, it wasn't that long ago where, you know, every product and every label on a box was hand keyed on a printer. And then we moved into a barcode technology, which allowed the individual retailer at the POS system to scan the vendor barcode and make it work within their system without starting all over again with label and the product. And RFID will get to that. I'm pretty confident in the next couple of years as well. Great. Well, Lou, this has been fantastic. I want to ask you one final question here, which is so many companies that have gone through digital transformation, it's still a matter of how you make your decisions based on where you are, how you optimize what you were toward a new digital world, a new digital customer. But sometimes it's a different question if you say, you know, what if I was to start again? What if I didn't have any assets, didn't have a brand, didn't have a stores, warehouses, nothing with everything you know now, with the technology that's available now, how would you build a new athletic footwear retail operation of some sort from the ground up, knowing if you were to start now, not having any legacy stuff you had to carry with you? It's a really good question, Howard. I mean, first of all, you know, I would start with data that's available today that wouldn't have been available in the past. So you can obviously there's industry data. So you picked athletic footwear. So let's start there. So I I would be targeting, let's take the US, I'd be targeting the cities with the largest penetration of sales going on in that category. And then with starting from square one, I would say in today's world, consumer expects a experience when they come to the actual physical location. So I would start off with, and every brand uses different phrases. I don't like the word flagship because it sounds like it's fancier and has to be. So uh, I particularly like the word power store. So it's a larger format store. So if your typical store is 3000 square feet, I'm talking something that's 10, not 50. But I think you need a presence in the marketplace first that that stamps your brand because in this example, we're new. Okay, so here's the power store. And then I take available data that's not that hard to come by today. And I geo target around that store. So whether you're going to go out one mile or 10 miles and then decide in that radius, what do I want to be? So do I want 25% of my business to be digital or 50? And then what's not going to be digital, I need to deploy stores into those areas from that standpoint. And then the most interesting thing is your supply chain. I would say from day one, the inventory in the store needs to be available to fill your e-com orders. And the closer it is from the store to the consumer, the more financially important it would be for you as a retailer. Um, because contrary to popular belief for a lot of us, a lot of retailers, I should say, the uh, e-com profitability is less than actual the customer in the store because of freight and other things that cost to move the product. 
So I would geo-target the area and decide what I want my digital penetration to be. And then I would fill in stores around it versus 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I did my stores first. And then I said, okay, now let's see what digital can be. So you, you would go and roll reverse. You know, How high can I be in digital knowing that I need a 3PL or a product available in my stores in the marketplace and then drop the stores in around it from that standpoint. So, and I think for those of us that are growing into other countries, not say in Full Locker's case, going into Asia these days, that's in most cases, I would think will be the model. You definitely need to make a presence. Otherwise, you can't cut through the marketplace when you drop into your first couple stores. Uh, and then what's the weight of the digital business going to be? Because that's, that's a really important component uh, today. And then you fill in your stores around it. And I'm fascinated that you began with physical stores because, of course, today one could make a different choice, right? You could say, well, avoid that cost. You said something at the end there, sort of in the middle, that I want to pull out and separate for a moment because you said something interesting, which is that, at least in your industry, it sounds like people sort of assume that, well, the e-commerce is going to be more profitable because if you can sell at the same price point, you don't have all the cost of the store. But not necessarily is what I hear you saying. And that, in fact, you might be able to be more profitable by the person who comes into the store, both because of potential cross-sell, but also because your freight charges in total might actually be more than your store overhead. Am I, have I said that correctly? Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's one of the interesting components is here. You have the amount of time you lose the product while it's being transferred or in transit from you to the consumer and potentially the consumer back again, because uh, mm -hmm. most of us pay to return freight as well. Mm -hmm. um, more so even now, the freight companies are definitely not flexible, if that's the best word, with what they expect to get paid, knowing how the pressure that's on them to move product. Uh, and you have other investments as well, too. You could argue that your investment in real estate and construction costs are clearly not any more than your investment to keep your website up and running and to continue to improve there from that perspective as well. So it's not a, yeah, it's not a guarantee from that standpoint you know, that that's how you would go from that end. Yeah. Clearly want the consumer to be able to shop there because that's what the consumer expects of you. And to be fair, the consumer doesn't, isn't going to be worried about whether we make a lot of money on a digital sale or not. They, assume we, could, they assume we can handle that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Lou, it's like a fount of wisdom. Just great. Thank you for tolerating my endless questions here. But I think this is the best type of information because it's the detailed on the ground operational realities of what you've been working on and the things you've done and the results you've gotten. So really, really appreciate you sharing all this insight with us over the last uh, 45 minutes or so. So thanks so much. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And thanks to everybody for listening. And with this, we will end today's podcast. Thanks again to everybody. Have a great day. Yeah. Thank you.